0: You are listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Britt Ray, author and researcher on climate change and mental health. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The general terms that have arisen are things like climate anxiety, eco-anxiety, ecological grief. Eco-anxiety has been defined by the American Psychological Association as the chronic fear of environmental doom climate would be a climate specific form and not just all environmental problems informed version of that kind of anxiety but really when we dig into it there's a general consensus in the field that it's not just anxiety it's a variety of co-occurring emotions that are challenging that a person can feel when confronting the climate crisis so sadness anger powerlessness helplessness grief sometimes guilt those kinds of things which can be just tough to deal with in our study that you mentioned we were looking at climate anxiety in 10,000 young people around the world, 16 to 25-year-olds in 10 countries across low, middle, high-income settings. And 45% of the global respondents of these young people said that their climate anxiety is impairing their daily functioning. So concentrating, eating, going to school, going to work, playing, having fun, that kind of thing. They had very negative thoughts. Seventy five percent of the people around the world said that the future is frightening. Fifty six percent said they feel humanity is doomed. And thirty nine percent said that they're hesitant to have their own kids. So because of all that, we know that if we're talking in Nigeria, India, Philippines, Canada and UK, US, Australia, Finland and some other countries, we're looking across really diverse scenarios uh, in terms of the national income and what that means for their ability to adapt and respond to climate threats and also their exposure already to climate hazards and disasters that are going on. So for that global aggregate to be that high, it's pretty striking. And then when you really dig into the most affected and underserved countries on this issue, so those with lower level economies and more climate disasters, you see the distress shooting through the roof more around 74% of the young people saying that it's impairing functioning, for instance. So it's a severe health equity issue, thinking about what it means to live with the psychological impacts of the climate crisis. And then also pointing out who's deserving, who needs the most attention and support at this time, rather than just kind of wasting all the attention or resources on. In this case, it would be young people in industrialized nations who are suffering as well, but not at the rates of lower income nations with more climate disasters. And of course, those in higher income settings uh, really outline the injustice of this are in the places that are making the climate crisis worse with their carbon intensive lifestyles. So I think we need to have that intersectional approach in any investigation of whether it's climate anxiety or if we're talking more generally about some type of climate distress that encompasses all these different emotions. And I think let's talk in a few years and see how we're measuring these things, because these constructs are emerging. We have a climate anxiety scale. We have an eco-anxiety scale. We have a climate worry scale. Things that researchers have developed and are testing out on populations. But it's not yet clear which ones are going to end up being the most valid, psychometrically valid, would be the jargon for that. And in terms of really accurately measuring what we're talking about and how much some of these constructs are overlapping and where they're different. It's a bit of a complicated and messy space. There's lots of new terms that are emerging, and we'll have to see which ones end up being most useful and helpful so that we can better help people. The intense hyper-individualism that many of us, particularly in industrialized Western nations, have been steeped in over our lives in recent history teaches us that we are not only not connected to one another, and dependent on one another within our communities, but that we are not part of a greater web of life in the more than human world, which of course we are. And the dominance model that puts humans at the top of the pyramid rather than at some place in an interconnected web has been extremely damaging for fomenting our sense of continual progress, you know, d- dominion of nature, often dominion of other peoples who, according to socially constructed hierarchies, have been oppressed from historically marginal logics. And so, all of this really goes against getting at the root of what caused this crisis, which relate back to colonialism and extraction from rampant industrialism, which has also, of course, been connected to in this hyper kind of consumerist neoliberal day that we experience in terms of our policies and why there's actually loneliness has emerged as a public health epidemic. And many people console that kind of space within themselves that hurts with material consumption rather than fostering deeper connections in it, which is healthier for overall physical and mental health. I mean, we've just been kind of floating around for a long time in a miasma of low meaning. I won't say meaninglessness, but not tapping into our full potential for meaning. And it's coming back to bite us in a variety of ways by keeping concealed often what the roots of the climate crisis are, how they connect to these bigger Oppressive systems in which we're living, and then, you know we need to see that in order to talk about it and shift it. But interconnection is key, and being able to shift away from seeing nature just as a resource to take from, but really something to revere and respect and understand in a mutualistic way, why it is sacred, why it is life-giving. And obviously, indigenous communities have been living in similar ways to this throughout time of immemorial, having sustainable, mutualistic relationships with nature compared to the dominant society and there's a lot to be learned from that kind of partnership model based on interconnection rather than continuing on in this kind of what's the word that i'm looking for essentially the way activist yes again and the ways in which we've continued to pollute the planet to ecological overshoot we're at an alarming period of decline we can't continue doing the same things in order to solve the crisis we need to think boldly and apply different ways of being. It's key that we can help alleviate some of the psychological distress and things that can produce negative mental health outcomes through interventions that specifically address that. But crucially, in a crisis that is escalating, we need to be able to get at the root problem. We need to be able to foment our ability to take climate action, to mitigate more harms and adapt well to the harms that are baked in. So. That means that action-taking, agency, self-efficacy, these elements of who we are, which are not just in all of us, they need to be built and cultivated and supported, is part of any mental health response package in the climate crisis, that we can't just self-sue that's the planet fern, so to speak, that's not really going to do anything to increase our ability to thrive and flourish in the long run. We need to pair the support and the emotional coping with the ability to help produce the change that we want to see in the world. So that's where the meaning and the purpose comes in and finding ways of taking action that are really authentic to each individual that will stick because it speaks to their passions and joys and what gives them satisfaction and what makes them feel really alive is a is an inquiry process that a person can go on and alongside what skills they might have to offer to find ways to connect rather than just assume this crisis is so big, we can't do anything, I don't know where to start, I don't want to be an activist who hits the street with a placard, for instance, it's not my style. That's fine. It doesn't need to be the action. There's so many creative ways in which we can approach this. And so really breaking the problem down into smaller key items is really important. And that can be moved towards from a really powerful and rooted place when it comes to connecting with the distress, like climate anxiety, for instance, those variety of studies that show us yes, ways in which it can impair functioning and it can reduce well-being, but it can also be a practical form of anxiety that moves people towards more climate action and pro-environmental change-making. So, how can we harness this distress as a kind of super fuel for making change at the same time as we preserve well-being? You know, it's not a medical cure that we're looking for because it's not a pathology. The intervention is climate action alongside bigger communities of care and support. So all of that can outline key pillars of what wisdom traditions have always told us. Going back thousands of years are important for humans to flourish. You know, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, being able to contribute to something greater than ourselves can be part of the well-being toolkit when that is rooted in these different kinds of actions that we need. I've got a lot of hope in the last year. I mean, there's, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act and there are people like Bertrand Picard and what he and the Solar Impulse Foundation are doing, offering 1,400 independently assessed profitable solutions. And I'm encouraged by the young generations tackling climate issues head on with passion because we have the tools now to meet these challenges and transition from fossil fuels to green energy and achieve uh, carbon neutrality. And just seeing the ongoing increase in actionable solutions, you know, it does give me hope. These are the kind of things that I cling to. Of course, there's the IPCC reports which are always worrying. But I mean, we're seeing ways for cities to lead the way. And there's open source systems, such as what Audrey Tang, a Taiwanese Minister of Digital Affairs does, offering citizens pathways to be active participants in the legislation and climate solutions. So these are things that give me hope. But what gives you hope? I think the general waking up that I'm seeing around me in so many different parts of society, people from all walks understanding that this is here, it's not a future threat, It's active now. We need to get smart about addressing it. And there's a deep approach that, you know, we've just been through the great resignation, for instance, with COVID, where a lot of people are leaving their jobs. But similarly, a lot of people are also asking themselves, how can I be of service? What can I do at this time? How am I going to be? And, you know, the more climate job boards and networking communities and sites of bringing people together to do that work of figuring out how they're going to go on their climate journey while infusing it with a sense of joy, with a sense of how can we make this fun, right? How can we reshift so it is not just focusing on the negative, but really focusing on what we want to be building and what is abundant and the better life that we're working towards. All of that has been Popping off a lot. <laughs> and that gives me an honest sense of hope. You know, I, I see that reflected. I see real people doing real things and changes in their life. And I feel it within myself. And all of those things are just great. It's possible to have high well being, high meaning, high engagement with things that matter and that are purposeful and ways of cultivating nourishing emotions around all of those things in an increasingly turbulent world. We can do that. So even as the systems around us change, if water becoming more scarce, let's say, or food scarcity, climate disasters ramping up and migration crises, there are lots of things that we can do within ourselves to stretch our capacity to be caring and continue taking action for the present moment rightness of it, which improves our overall well-being. So all of those things have me feeling hopeful, you know, it's a complicated kind of hope. It's an act of hope or a radical hope. It's not a kind of just sit back and feel that things are going to get better and hope that other people are going to solve it kind of hope. That doesn't apply here. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.